myself, I've never had the pleasure of doing some kind of medical exam that requires you to drink a contrast fluid first. How many of you have had that pleasure? Hmm. I'm glad you have had it and I haven't because I've heard that it's not the most entertaining or pleasurable of experiences. But what's the purpose? Why drink that fluid before the exam? It's called a contrast. That's what it's called, a contrast fluid. The point is the fluid acts to make something that needs to be seen more clearly visible. We're now in our fourth week working through Psalm 103. David begins the psalm exhorting his own soul to praise God. And then he lists reasons why God is deserving of praise. Two weeks ago, we looked at three comparisons that David made. Comparisons show how two or more things are alike. He compared the height of the heavens above the earth to the love of God, which is never-ending. He then compared the distance from east to west to show how far God removes sin from God's people. And lastly, he compared God to earthly fathers in order to reveal God's compassion for his children. From comparison, David then moves to contrast. He brings up the frailty and weakness and insignificance of humanity and contrasts mankind with the enduring eternal power and love of God. So what's the point? It's to highlight the difference between the two. And with the contrast of the frailty of humanity to reveal the unbelievable grace of God. So we'll continue to read the next few verses in Psalm 103. I'm actually going to start with verse 13 to give us the context and then we'll read on for the next five verses. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. The wind blows over it and it's gone and its place remembers it no more. But... From everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him and his righteousness with their children's children, with those who keep his covenant and remember to obey his precepts. As we work through these verses this morning, I would like us to look at the frailty of humanity and then how God responds to that frailty. And then, as God's children, what is our response to his response. I know that gets pretty convoluted. Please forgive me. But again, the frailty of humanity, how God responds to that frailty, and then for those who are children of God, what is the expected response on our part to his response? Let's begin by, by looking at how David describes or reveals the frailty of humanity. The first aspect that David brings up is our origins. A phrase that's often used or is often applied to people who were born into poverty but then somehow managed to over their life rise to a higher economic level they're often referred to as having come from humble origins 
The truth is that all of us have come from extremely humble origins. Mankind, humanity, people, we were created from the dust of the ground. This is what the psalmist reminds us of. For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. So as bluntly as I can say it, you're dirt. And I'm dirt. Let's get to the point. Let's get to the bottom line. David affirms this, and it emphasizes the reality. What reality? That humans were not divine, were not gods, were not even angelic. Our origins are the dust of the ground. And if we think of it in that way, God created even the dirt before he made us. Moving on, the second aspect of the frailty of people is our mortality. We see this in verses 15 through 16. Not only do we come from, horrible, from humble origins, but humanity is, is frail because we're mortal. There is an end to our earthly lives. It's inescapable. I mean, perhaps, at least from a human perspective, we think we can extend our lifespan, maybe, through modern medicine or health or exercise or vitamins, what have you, but the end is coming and we are powerless. All of humanity is powerless to change that end. Again, humanity's mortality reminds us that we are not gods. We are limited. Even our own ends, we, we can't even control our own destiny. That's a lie that we're fed often. You can control your own destiny. Well, you have some agency as it involves your life on this earth, but guess what? The, your life on this earth is coming to an end. I read a poet once, I don't remember his name, who said that man begins to die at the moment of conception. So when that new life is conceived, the path toward death has begun. The third aspect of, of the frailty of humanity that David, the psalmist, brings out is our profound insignificance. He uses the illustration of the desert grass. And remember, much of Israel is desert. It's arid. It's dry. Um, maybe at some point you've seen uh, or watched on YouTube or some other source a time, uh, a time re not time release, what is it called? A time lapse video of what happens in very arid areas when it does rain. So sometimes on the savanna of Africa, um, sometimes in those big national parks in southern Africa, um, it'll be all brown and beige and gray. The rain comes and through this time-lapse photography, you just see all this green appears in such a short amount of time. But if you continue to watch it, what happens in a very short amount of time after, once the rain is gone, the humidity dries up, and the way David describes it is that hot, dry, arid desert wind blows over that grass, which is so green, and in a matter of moments, it is dried and brittle, and it dies. And then David says, it's place. So that very soil in which it was planted, it remembers it no more, it forgets it. So not only is humanity mortal, but compared to the sweep of an arc of history, our lifespan is very short. And the truth is that for the vast majority of us, 
maybe all of us in this room, after we die, we're not going to be remembered beyond maybe one more generation, maybe two. Its place remembers it no more. How, how much have people longed to leave a mark on the world, to leave a legacy that's remembered, maybe to make a name for themselves so that in some way they might attain immortality, at least in the memory of, of a culture or a people. But imagine the billions of people who have already lived and died. What percentage of those do you think are remembered today? Even if we were to open every history textbook at every school in the world and list all the names that are mentioned in those books that are, quote, remembered, it would be a fraction of the population of people who have lived. A couple years ago, I was um, on my way to attend a burial at Cemeterio da Paz, and uh, I was walking down one of the paths, and I happened to glance down and see a gravestone for President Juscelino Kubitschek. And I was a little startled. You know, I stopped, and I was like, wow. And I'm standing there looking at it, and for a moment, there's this, it's like impressive, right? I've never stood by the grave of a Brazilian president before. And then, as I looked down, I started to think, this grave is exactly like this grave, is exactly like this grave. And the destiny of all those people, at least the earthly destiny, was exactly the same. Quite frankly, uh, Kubitschek was, was a famous man, a powerful man in his day. What do we remember about him today? Okay, I'm, this is a full disclosure, I'm going to be honest. What's the first thing that comes to my mind President Kubitschek, there's a mall named after him. There's a major avenue in Sao Paulo named after him. Beyond that, the only thing that I know that he did, and I think I've got this right, he was the one responsible for moving the capital of, of Brazil from the coast to Brasilia. And he designed it like an airplane for some reason. That's all I know. Now, I'm not a historian, and yet still, what, what is remembered of this man who at one time had risen to the highest position of power in this nation? We are so insignificant. That's a hard fact to swallow. When I was in college, one of my heroes was Michael Jordan, who is still, who is still the best basketball player ever just to be clear. Don't come talk to me about LeBron or Kobe or anyone else. But you know, because I, I used to really enjoy watching him play, I've kind of followed his life and career. And if you watch some more recent interviews with him, you can see and hear in his voice the desperation of lost fame and influence. You can, you can just see it. It's like he was at the very top of that sport. And now he is getting old. And he looks more like me than he looks like an athlete. And he's not able to perform as he once was. And even though he has, still has so much power and money, you just hear it in his voice and in the phrases, that longing for that lost fame. It's going, it's gone, and it's going to ultimately be meaningless. 
The frailty of humanity is revealed in our origin, in our mortality, and in our insignificance. Now, if the story ends there, it would truly be depressing. That would be the bottom of the pit. But again, what is David doing? He is setting up a contrast. So the contrast of our frailty in the light of God's enduring eternal love. How does God then respond to the frailty of humanity? The first aspect that David brings out is that God takes our origins into account. For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. What does that mean? David is affirming that God is not going to require something of his people that they are not able to do. Either because he, won't, he just simply will not require it, or because if he does require it, he will give them what they need to be able to meet his standard, to achieve what he is asking them to do. As a dad, I do not ask, or I did not ask, my two-year-old son to lift the 70-pound suitcase that's coming on the conveyor belt after we get off the plane. Come on, son, get it, get it, hurry up, obey me. I'm telling you what to do, do it. I'm gonna, you're going to get punished, you're going to get spanked, you're going to have a timeout, you're not going to get ice cream. What? It's requiring something of that child that they are physically incapable of doing is evil. That's torment. And so David says, God has compassion on his children, and one way he reveals that compassion is that he knows how we are formed and he rem remembers that we are dust. So he does not expect from us that which we cannot achieve. Now, friends, this is the core of what we call the gospel. The fact that we cannot save ourselves because we're dust. And so God made a way for humanity to be saved from sin and destruction and the evil that's in the world. A way that was opened to people not by their own efforts. Like they didn't build it, we didn't make it. Not by our dedication or by our hard work, but by the mercy and grace of God who through Jesus Christ provided a way for salvation by Christ's death on the cross, taking our place, dying in our place, with his death paying for the sins of humanity. This is the gospel. This is God taking our origins into account. This is God saying, I know, son, I know, daughter, what you are and where you have come from. And for that reason, you will experience my mercy. And the primary way is by Christ dying on the cross, offered in our place. Secondly, God encounters our mortality with his immortality. There's no reason for this apart from his love. So note the contrast, the life of mortals is brief, and when it's over, they're quickly forgotten. On the other hand, from everlasting to everlasting, that means from no beginning to no end, from everlasting to everlasting, God's love is with 
those who fear him. So if God's love is with those who fear him from everlasting to everlasting, it means those who fear him are everlasting as well. Our lives are a breath of wind. God endures forever. And for those who are under the banner of God, for those who belong to him, for those who are his children, he welcomes them into his eternity. Now, that eternity that we talk about, that phrase eternal life that we often use in a church context, let's be clear. That doesn't mean this life going on forever and ever. And that's something I'm very grateful for. Even though the occasional traffic jam in Sao Paulo will give us all a taste of eternity, um, this life is not it. There is a future beyond this that is better, that is pure, that is righteous, that is joyful, and that is clean for those who are God's children. And that is what he invites us into, his immortality in exchange for our mortality. From everlasting to everlasting the Lord's love is with those who fear him and his righteousness with their children's children. The third response on God's part to the frailty of humanity is that he gives them his love and his righteousness. In fact, it's God's love that conveys his immortality to them. I know we talk about God's love all the time and uh, I don't have any statistical proof of this, but I'm guessing it may be one of the most often quoted phrases, God is love, Dios es amor. I don't know any other languages how Dios es amor, maybe in Spanish, I don't know. Um, so many of you could fill in some other blanks. But uh, we see it um, in scripture. We see it on some churches. We see it on combis. Um, you know, we see it on fuscas. We see it on all over the place. And please do not think that I am suggesting that this is not true simply because we see it and hear it so often. The Bible teaches it, repeats it, proclaims it, and celebrates it. And yet I think that often, for those of us who often converse about it, often hear it, often speak of it, we lose the wonder of what it means to be loved by God. There are times that I look at my wife and I truly am simply amazed and humbled and blessed that she loves me, that this woman loves me in spite of my selfishness, my faults, my sins, and my stubbornness. I usually have this thought when I've just done something really stupid <laughs> and I have wounded her in some way or I've said something insensitive. And I, I wonder, I truly do, I wonder at the fact that I feel, Lord, thank you. God, thank you for giving me to this woman who loves me so much. But is God's love less than hers? Should we marvel less at the fact that God loves us? That he truly does. And so the divine almighty has set his love upon the mortal creature made from dust, insignificant, and by his love elevates us to eternity with him. But there's one more gift that God gives his people, and that is God's righteousness. 
God's love is with those who fear him and his righteousness with their children's children. This is a parallelism. Remember that device from Hebrew poetry? He's not saying that only the children's children have the righteousness and only the first generation has the love. It's both. He just states it in a slightly different way with a twist. The standard for eternal life is righteousness. It's perfection. It's purity. That's the standard. That's, if you want to think of it this way, that's the ticket. You know, you get to the the gates of heaven. Where's your ticket? Well, here's my ticket. It's righteousness. And as I've already mentioned, none of us are going to make it, right? You cannot, it's impossible. We can't achieve that on our own. If we are honest, even to the slightest degree about ourselves, we will admit that no matter how hard we try, we cannot be perfect. And if you say that you are perfect, you are lying and therefore not perfect. So even as God has bestowed his love on his children, so also he's given his righteousness to his children because God looks upon his creation and knows that we will not, we will not ever be able to enter that eternal life on our own. How does the Bible describe our own efforts at righteousness? Do you remember? Filthy rags. That's what our righteousness, so I try to dress myself up to look good in my self-righteousness. It's like I'm getting old bundle shown that's just been used to clean up vomit and drape myself with it and say, don't I look righteous? Don't I look good? Again, I've told you more than once that I coach a basketball team. And uh, there was a game this past season where we were in the locker room and we were preparing and one of our starting five players came to me and said, Coach, I forgot my uniform. I don't have my uniform. And in my heart, I'm going, and on the outside, I'm saying, well, I'm sorry. I wish you had remembered it. Because without a uniform, you can't play. And you know what? We've got about 15 minutes before the game starts, and no matter how hard you try, you are never going to be able to fabricate to sew a uniform that looks like all the other uniforms so that you are able to play. I'm sorry. And inside, I'm like, we need this guy to play if we want to have a hope of winning. And then... One other player on the team came to me a couple minutes later. He said, Coach, I really want to give my uniform to this other player because I know he's more important to the team than I am and um, he will play more than I. He'll have a greater impact, so can I give him my uniform? And I thought, what an incredible example of humility, right? And an incredible example also of, of a vision of what a team is that... Um, We're working for the good of the team and not just of the individual um, needs and and pride and desires. So he did. He gave his jersey to this other player. And that's a picture to me of what Christ has done for those who have surrendered to him. He gives them his righteousness. Your righteousness is never going to be good enough. It's never going to be good enough. It's not just a matter of taking those dirty rags and running them through the washing machine a couple times. Even with bleach, it's not enough. There's still going to be rags. 
So Christ says, I will give you my righteousness that will cover your sin, that will purify you, and that will make you acceptable to God. That's grace. Humanity is so broken and sinful that our own righteousness cannot just be fixed. So God provides righteousness from himself. If this is God's response to the frailty of humanity, then how do those who, who are his people, who are his children, how should we respond to his generosity and his mercy and grace? David has embedded these responses here in these verses. Foundationally, the two that he gives us are to fear the Lord and to obey him. From everlasting to everlasting, God's love is with those who do what? Fear him. And then in the next verse, his righteousness is with whom? His righteousness is with the descendants of those who fear him, with those who keep his covenant and obey him. Two weeks ago, I, I spoke about the fear of the Lord. It's a difficult concept because the word fear in, in English is really only understood generally to mean being terrified of something or someone. But when it's used in scripture as fear of the Lord, it is that profound, deep awe and respect for God's holiness, righteousness, and power. It is an awe and awareness of who he is that keeps us from sinning because we do not want to end up as on the other side, shall we put it that way, of a truly holy, just God. So the fear of the Lord will keep us near him, close to him. The second response is obedience. Now I want you to see that both of these reactions, so to build the fear of the Lord and to obey him, they both have their start in a sense, in the word of God in scripture. So two weeks ago, I mentioned how God said to Moses and to the people of Israel, I'm giving you my words so that you will fear the Lord, which will keep you from sinning. Where does it start? With the word. And what about obedience? You know, we may have genuinely sincere hearts that really want to be close to God, but if we do not know what God requires, if we don't understand what it means to obey him, which we find in his word, then how will we fulfill that? So at the school that my sons attend, at the beginning of each school year, the school sends home a massive encyclopedia. It's called the Student Handbook. And I don't know how many pages, 60, 70, 80 pages long. I really don't remember. It's a lot of pages. And the joy is that not only the students, but the parents get to read this as well. And then we need to sign a statement saying that we have read, read it. Now, it's not, it's not entertaining. You know, the, 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 the reading all these rules and guidelines and instructions is not entertaining. However, it does bear fruit later because there have been several times where we've faced a particular situation in our family as it regards the school, and we're not sure how we should proceed. And then I'm like, oh, I'll just call someone or I'll send someone a text and ask him. And my son will say, dad, it's probably in the student handbook. So we go look it up in the student, and there it is. There's the answer. What's the point? So I may have a sincere desire 
for myself and my sons to be right with the school. But if I don't, I don't know what that means. What does the school require? What are its norms? What are its procedures? The same is true with the Lord. I may have a sincere desire to be obedient, to follow, and to, to live in a way that pleases God. But if I don't know what that way is, how can I obey it? Sincerity is not a measure of truth. And sincerity is not a measure of outcome. So I can't arrive before the judgment, judgment seat of Christ and say, well, I was really sincere, God. And God would say, you were sincere in your disobedience. So this is a reminder, a, a, a further invitation for us to engage the Word of God. The Word of God read, meditated upon, thought about, ingested and digested that will reveal God's true nature to us and that will grow fear for Him, a holy fear for Him in our hearts and minds. And it's in His Word that we learn what to obey. The last point I want to make this morning is that we respond to God's response by leaving a legacy of faith. So David contrasts the insignificance and frail of, frail, frailty sorry, of humanity with the eternal enduring love of God. As I said earlier, mankind strives on its own to be remembered, strives to leave a mark, but we're gone in such a brief time and our place doesn't remember us. But... For those who fear the Lord, God's eternal love is with them forever and his righteousness with their children's children who continue to obey him. Here's the point. The best way, actually the only way to leave a meaningful legacy on this earth is through faithfulness to Jesus Christ. Parents, and by that, when I say parents, I'm addressing everyone in here. Why is that? Because if you're a biological father or a biological mother, you're being addressed. If you are not a biological father or a biological mother, you are called to exert a, to fulfill a role of spiritual fatherhood and spiritual motherhood to and in the church. The highest, greatest gift that we can give our children is to fear the Lord ourselves and to set an example of obedience for our children. That is the greatest gift we can give. It will be more beneficial to them than the best education, than the best job training, than the most exclusive university and the highest financial inheritance. I'm not saying those other things are meaningless. I'm saying they are not the most important. So as I look to my sons and I want my legacy to them to endure, and I want their legacy to their descendants to endure, how does that happen? It's by the love of God and His righteousness to their children's children. Now, we understand that when he says their righteousness with their children's children, he still qualifies that, doesn't he? By saying to those who keep His covenant and remember to obey His precepts, so the descendants are still responsible before God to fear him and to obey him for themselves. But what's the advantage that they have if their spiritual and biological parents have set them on that road already? 
And not only have set them on the road and say, go do it, but have walked that road with them in example of fear of the Lord and in obedience. When our frailty is surrendered to the enduring, everlasting love of God, what results is an eternal legacy of his faithfulness. This morning, as we do on every Sunday of Lent, we will be receiving and celebrating communion or the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, together. What is this about? It's about the gospel that I've just been talking about. We remember the truth that humanity is so broken in our sin and our rebellion against righteousness that there is no fix. Scripture says the wages of sin is death, meaning separation from God. We're all going to pay that price unless someone else pays it for us. And that's what God chose to do. The Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, together one God. The Father sends His Son, Jesus Christ, who is perfectly willing and submitted to the will of the Father, who comes and lives a human life in a human body and dies a human death, but rises a divine resurrection. And because of His purity and perfection, because He pays, He doesn't have to pay for His own sin, He is able to offer His death on the cross as payment for our sin. That's why the Gospel of John says to all who received him, to all who received Jesus, to those who believed on his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So we come to him through repentance. We come to him in belief, acknowledging that he is the Son of God, that he exists, that he is who he says he is. We surrender our lives to him. That's what we celebrate at the communion table. So as those who will be ministering and serving the elements come forward now, I invite you to come on forward to prepare the table. I invite the rest of you into a time, just a couple minutes, of thoughtful meditation to consider this gift. Consider God's grace in light of our frailty.